Have you ever wondered how successful architecture, engineering, and construction companies scale their business? Or have you ever wanted guidance on how to get more growth, wealth, and freedom from your AEC company? Well, then you are in luck. Hi, I'm Will Forat. And I'm Justin Nagel, and we're your podcast hosts. We interview successful AEC business leaders to learn how they use people, process, and technology to scale their businesses. So sit back and get ready to learn from the industry's best. This is Building Scale. Today's guest is Tony Merchadani. Tony is the CEO of RTM Engineering Consultants, a national consulting firm with 18 offices across the country. RTM offers a full range of design services, including mechanical, electrical, plumbing, fire protection, civil engineering, and structural engineering. They also offer many specialty services like commissioning, technology design, our flash and sustainability. With the massive growth and scaling that they've been doing, it's no surprise in the last 10 years, RTM has been listed on the Inc. 5000 eight times eight, as in not one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, but eight times on the Inc. 5000. Uh, Tony is certainly at the center of this. He's responsible for RTM's vision, strategy, and operations to provide quality engineering in a customer-focused culture. But when I asked Tony, what does he do? Uh, in one of the first calls we had, he said, I build culture, which is certainly something I'm excited about and very, very excited to speak at nauseum with him today. So with all that said, Tony. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Pleasure to be here and thank you for having me. Yeah, no, we're excited. Um, we 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 need to get more engineers. I think I think there's a stigmatism to engineers are not fun. And I, and I disagree because all the engineers we've interviewed have been lots of fun in some of our favorite episodes. So we're 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 full on the search for engineers. So uh, a little plug if you're an engineer uh, or you run an engineering company, uh, reach out because we're interested in interviewing you. So uh, I gave the little spiel, but Tony, tell us your origin story. Tell us about you, how you got into the business, and then just a little history of RTM. Sure. I'd love to. So technically, I am an engineer, too. And I will say that we have a ton of fun, both internally and externally in the company. Engineers are a ton of fun. I actually came out of the tech world. Uh, I was in the dot-com boom and the dot-com bust back in the day. And uh, then went into uh, technology for a little while and suddenly landed up in uh, RTM, engineering consulting. Never planned on being here. My father had founded the company and kept it really small as in three people for 20 plus years of our existence. And mainly he did that because that gave him the chance to really do what he loves, engineering. Um, when I came in, I'm technically an engineer, but I'm guaranteed to be the worst engineer out of our entire corporation. <laughs> and uh, what, when we figured that out, I figured out I'm also a very passionate entrepreneur. So I started growing the organization and I fell in love with working with engineers and working in the construction space. It's really different than the uh, than the traditional technology spaces, even though there's a lot to learn from the tech space. Our industry is enormous. It is required, and it can't be put out of business overnight because of some new technology that puts one company out versus the other. After falling in love with it, started growing. Fast forward to today, we're about 300 people, 18 offices around the country. And um, I realized that while I may be running an engineering business, I'm really in the people business. We just happen to get paid for engineering. And that mindset shift is really one of the key differentiators that sets us apart. I So I remember you telling me this in the beginning or telling us this in the beginning of our first call. And I was, you know, a little in awe because I'm always like, I'm very people culture oriented. I love that part of business. I think it's amazing. So when I hear a CEO 
of a, a 300 person engineering firm talk about this, I start saying like, ooh, ooh, I get all giddy. So when did you realize that that was your your passion or purpose? And and how how is that kind of folded out in the, the growth of RTM? It probably took about uh, five to seven years before I really realized that we're not just an engineering company and that my job is not to run an engineering company and that we truly are in the people business because as we continue to grow and um, you know, we're about 30, 40 people back in the day in our initial growth. And then we hit this interesting plateau and couldn't figure out how to break through that ceiling of, you know, that 30 to 40 people. Um, as soon as we made that mindset shift to we're in the people business and we're here to empower our team members. Then we started looking outside of our industry. What are people in the tech world doing, in the accounting, in the legal world? How, what are all the different organizational structures? How do you get the really best people and empower them to be able to go create the careers and the lives that they want to have within a entrepreneurial-focused organization? And as we did that, then it started to just get its own momentum and truly just took off after that. It's, again, that mindset shift. You get the right people in the right seats empower them, give them the tools to do, and then leave them alone. So my job is to get the resources to my teams so they can be successful at doing whatever they're passionate about doing. They don't need to be told what that is. That's that's for them to decide and go uh, go accomplish. So would you consider yourself uh, then already successful or is it a work in progress? I'd say it's always a work in progress. So I think we've had our successes, we've had our failures, um, but I'm a lifelong learner, and I always like to surround myself by other lifelong learners. So we're continuously pushing the envelope on what we can learn. And um, we live by the motto that if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. So success is never truly there. It's something that we're constantly in pursuit of. And uh, we celebrate our failures just as much as we celebrate our successes, because we can't learn about or we can't learn anything without our failures. Those are probably uh, more important than any of the successes we've had. Now, you personally had said something, which is if you've gotten to a point, you need to retire. Do you want to explain that a little bit? I'm a big believer. And if you've gotten to a point where you're not going to continue learning and expanding your horizons and developing the rest of your team, then it's probably time to hang it up. Because in today's, in today's marketplace, it's constant evolution and uh, new opportunities to keep innovating. And that's what we're always looking for internally. And I hold myself accountable to my team holds me accountable and I hold my team accountable to the exact same thing. So you, you've been through the gauntlet, right? You started four people, 300 people looking to grow from there. You know, as you say, you're in, if you're ready to stop, it's time to retire. So what are the, what are the hurdles that you kind of experienced in this growth from four to 300? There are obviously very different business problems happened at these different levels. So explain that with, uh, to us. Yeah. One of the biggest challenges is I was always looking at our industry and, you know, how have other people done it? And what does that firm look like? And let's just, you know, replicate and then we can go accomplish the same thing. And it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that for a multitude of reasons. When they, these are, some of my competitors grew, it was a different day and age versus when we started to grow. And then also looking outside of our industry, there are a lot of other things that were being done much better by uh, other professional services. And for that matter, uh, other industries outside of professional services. So starting to learn about the different opportunities and things that people were doing, I learned a ton through EO and YPO and 
outside mentorship and even analyzing public companies versus private companies, pulling all those different tidbits in, we're able to create something really different and unique for our time within our market space and the services that we offer. So that became truly a niche. And part of that was as we continued to grow, we hit these different plateaus. It would be 12 people. And then suddenly you have to change your infrastructure, 30, 40 people, again, infrastructure change, 75, 150 people, infrastructure change, organizational change. And we had to make conscious decisions at that time. Are we going to continue to elevate our team members or are we going to bring outside managers? Are we going to uh, start to have, you know, bureaucracy and politics and competition internally? Or do we want to stick to our true core values, which, you know, sometimes is really hard to do when um, you're pushed up against a corner. But we stuck with those and we were able to build a infrastructure in which suddenly now we're highly scalable. And one of our best attributes is we, we will keep hitting new milestones in where there's a ceiling and you, you can't get past X number of team members or X number of revenue. We're breaking through it because we've got this, uh, this group of partners that are internal to the company that all ran their own firms in the past or came in as strategic hires and we're learning from each other because everyone's got 10, 20, 30, sometimes 40 years of successes and mistakes. And if we can all learn from each other's mistakes, we've got thousands of years of mistakes that help us leapfrog forward because we don't need to make the same ones again. That's really smart. I, I do believe that more collaborative, you know, uh, minds coming together, more ab abundance mindset in comparison to scarcity, like that, that's the differentiator. Me and Will talked to Justin Bream at one point in time, uh, and he opened my brain to this whole concept of like, we're thinking about it all wrong. It's, it's all about collaborative. How do you get together to build great things, amazing things? And that's certainly what's ringing through my head right now. You also mentioned a lot of EOS terms. So I know, I know that you guys are an EOS company, which brings Working on the business is always a big piece of it. We actually just, me and Will just had our leadership meeting uh, last Tuesday and it was, hey, we're not going to work in the business today. We're going to work on the business. So what does that mean to you? What does working on the business mean to you? Same thing that it means to most entrepreneurs out there. You're taking a step back and you're looking at this from 30,000 foot and trying to figure out, hey, where do we want to be in that five or 10 year period? And what are those milestones that we need to hit? But the really cool thing that we found is, and I know we're going to talk about a little later, all the different mergers and acquisitions. Well, all my partners that have come in through mergers and acquisitions are typically focused on working in the business. And it was a chance for me to come here and say, you know what, let's take the day and let's all look at working on the business. And then taking that working on the business and coming up with that 12-month action plan, that's really been the game changer because it changes everyone's mindset to getting out of the day-to-day -day blocking and tackling that we're always doing and turning in that turning that working on the business into a team sport. So that's one of the big differences that we have is we consider all of these really team sports and every partner has their own strengths and weaknesses and being able to tie those together and learn from the mistakes that we've all made together separately before we met each other, et cetera, helps us accelerate that process. Because if you've got some rocks or some, uh, what's it called, some goals that maybe one region or one office wants to do, maybe another office already executed those two years ago. And we're able to take those, those successes and be able to go duplicate them instead of spending the entire year figuring it out individually. 
teamwork, people, multiplying. Uh, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Exactly. Do you have a BHAG? We do. We do. We set a, uh, a BHAG seven years ago that we want to be a hundred plus million dollar firm. And we are well on our way to getting there. So now it's probably time to set the next BHAG, which we still have to sit down and do. Have you thought any, uh, thought about what might be that next BHAG? And why, and why even create a BHAG? I do think it's really important to have a BHAG because it's, um, it's something that is aspirational and it's not that important if you reach it or you don't reach it, but it gives you that big picture direction that the firm is going to be moving into. For us, the BHAG isn't really a number. It's the fact that we are a high growth organization and everything we do internally, we're thinking about, can we continue to scale this? Can we go replicate this? What, what can we do to eliminate the next bottleneck so that we can grow more aggressively while taking pressure off of our teams? So, you know, we're, we're in a business where if we put too much on our teams, we're obviously going to burn out. And our teams are, are, are people. That's all we have, right? I mean, the people business again. So what do we do so that we can empower our team members to not take on more work and more pressure, but to be able to get more done through innovation or through delegate and elevate and all these other tactics that we can use. Having that BHAG has always kept that pressure there so that we continue to go execute towards growth. And that changes the mindset of hundreds of people that help us all move in the same direction. Otherwise, we're just going to work every day. One of my personal passions is really being able to create an environment where everybody comes to work and they're so passionate about the work that they get to do that they're not doing it because it's a job. It's something that they get to pursue their passion in. And the icing on the cake is they're also building a career out of it. So there's a lot of customization that goes into everyone's position at the company. And I think that that really tells uh, volumes about the culture that we've built here. For the listeners that are listening, don't know what a BHAG is. It's big. What is it? Big, hairy, audacious goal. Big, hairy. Yep, exactly. I think it was a Jim Collins term, if I recall right. Yeah. And it's supposed to be like a 10, it's supposed to be a 10 year or 20 year goal where it just seems scary and it's kind of like a stretch goal, but you want to, you know, that's what your kind of your North star is for the entire company. So that everyone's rowing, you know, in the same direction, right? Exactly. And it's, it's one of those things I explained to the team that look, this isn't something that you can actually set a path out to go accomplish and know you're going to be able to get there. There's a huge gap from what you know you can do in the next three years versus what you want to accomplish in that 10 to 20 year span. The key is we're just going in that direction. And then every so often, unique things happen in the marketplace that allow you to accelerate that path and keep that North Star. And more often than not, people are able to achieve those BHAGs. And when you look back at it, you're flabbergasted that um, that's that's even realistic. Your BHAG, there's a piece of it that's really about acquisitions. Are you willing to talk about your acquisition strategy? You know, why? Because you, how many companies has it been? Yeah, yeah, I would love to. So far, we have uh, acquired 14 companies, really merged with 14 companies. So what, why don't you talk about that? Because that's super interesting, especially for the amount of time. That's a lot of companies to acquire. So why don't you talk, talk about that? Sure. It's been about a 10-year program that uh, it's been 10 years since we've been running this M&A program internally here. And I'll tell you, it has been as much effort as building another startup company internally in RTM. And I'd like to say we've become experts at this. 
we uh, we've really honed in on the kind of companies that we're looking for, and it comes down to the people that are at the companies. So in our industry, we've got I think it's twenty plus thousand firms that operate in our industry, and for us to continue growing, we can go out to new marketplaces and start an office and build it and so on, or we can go find like-minded partners that have hit a ceiling or are really interested in future growth and bring them into the partnership. And by doing that through a merger or an acquisition, we're able to create something really unique that most, most owners don't have, which is they have the opportunity for liquidity. They've also got the opportunity to suddenly partner with 50 or 60 competitors that you people that used to be competitors before now are all running the exact same P&L. We share our secret sauce with them. They share their secret sauce with us. And suddenly, as a collaborative group, we are so much stronger than we were the prior day to the merger. It really is a chance to be able to bring together a bunch of best practices. And as we've been doing that, unlike traditional mergers and acquisitions, we are looking at growing every organization day one. And the synergies that we can drive through that are significant. So I spend a lot of my time talking to owners of uh, competitor firms about what it would be like if we merge. And most of the time, it's not a good fit. It's culture. It all comes back to culture 100%. But if you find that right culture fit, suddenly you can put these two organizations together and everyone on both sides of the fence are happier for it because everyone's life should be better and they should have the chance to be all the team members should have the chance to be able to uh, pursue their purpose more post-transaction than they could pre-transaction super cool so what is that what are those red flags with culture and people look like obviously that as as you said that is the foundation for everything of success so when you're obviously the numbers need to be right all those things when you look you know in, in the books but like what's what are the red flags you see with culture or people when you, you look at a business? The interesting thing is that first, we don't actually look at the numbers. That's the very last thing that we're looking at, which is, again, why it's, it's kind of unique in the M&A space compared to what most people do. Most people is financial engineering, especially if you're a financial buyer. We're, we're a strategic buyer. So we're looking for team members that when we, when we make that, that merger and that culture piece, right, everyone's going to be happy on both sides. Best way for me to describe that. There's there's no real great technical answer. It really comes down to it's it's kind of like a dating process. So you got to spend a lot of time with the two organizations. And the more time you get to spend, even walking through our offices, breaking bread, um, talking about why people started their firms, where they want to see their firm in the future. If a potential seller, you know, if we're having the conversation and they're talking about how they, you know, they've they've hit a ceiling at maybe 50 or 60 people and they're having challenges building this and building that. And we're like, oh, well, we have this piece and we can share knowledge on that and they can share knowledge in maybe a different uh, service line or geography. We're able to merge those two together and know that, okay, strategically, this is going to make a lot of sense. But the most important thing is they actually want to continue to grow. They want, they talk about empowering their team members. They talk about how certain people within the organization have developed and how they have so much potential. They want to be able to uh, unleash the potential of their team members. And they see the RTM network of offices and team members giving their team member that opportunity to unleash their potential. Then suddenly I'm like, all right, now there's a good culture fit. I'm talking to a seller and it's like, all right, I want to retire in uh, 30 days and it's going to be an auction process. And 
I've got an asset. It's my company. Anybody can have it that wants to. Whoever is the highest bidder can have it. We never have a second conversation. We walk away. And that's kind of the opposite extreme from the person that's really interested in how do they empower their next generation so they can be even more successful than the founders were. That's a great point because if it if a owner owner or founder is willing to just essentially sell their people to the highest bidder, that inherently means the culture's not good there. Exactly. Like that's there's no reality where they obviously don't care about their people to get them in the the best place to succeed in the future after they've retired. So that's actually great insight there. Kudos kudos to you for for thinking that way. Kudos to you for sure. Thank you. People first. People first. Love that. So your EOS journey, right? When a when did that start? What did that look like? Uh, I know you got a, a very interesting uh, operator uh, essentially that has his, his own tail. So tell us about that. One of my old forum mates, Dan Hyrett, is our EOS facilitator, and I where we are today has a lot to do with the fact that uh, he came in and he helped us implement EOS. And really just setting that that vision and building that discipline internally of being able to run EOS and being able to get everyone to start thinking about working on the business instead of in the business. It was a decade ago. So for instance, back then we had about eight principal partners at the, uh, at the company. We got together and we set our core values. And I didn't realize how important that would be. It took two days, by the way. Can you imagine sitting in the room for two days to set four core values? And after we did that, it's actually stuck and it's stuck for the last decade. And now we've started to build other programs like a client framework. What kind of clients do we want to go pursue? The natural and analytical mind wants to say, oh, clients that pay well and are growing and are this and that. And we put that part of it aside and we actually tied it to our core values instead. And we said we want you know, partners that can form uh, the proper partnership with us, partners that can uh, truly value excellence in engineering, that are strong communicators, and that believe in unity as an overall team, and fit those other financial metrics. But those are secondary to fitting the core values, because that's the stuff that we believe in internally. And it's been a fabulous shift. And it all came out of that whole EOS process. It's been It's been really helpful. And it helps all of our team members speak the same language across offices because, as you can imagine, our teams don't get to see each other very often, just being so spread out. If our EOS implementer listens to this episode, he'd be so proud of you because all of the same language on the business, all of the terms of EOS is are coming out during this, which is uh Fabulous. I love it. So what? tell us about, uh, and I don't remember his name, but essentially he said, I love EOS so much. Maybe this is what I need to do. Oh, that's right. We had uh, a young man named Matt Ziga joined us straight out of school. There you go. <laughs> Fabulous engineer and you know, came in as an intern and then worked his way up, actually became a principal in the company. So he was also running an office at the time. And he helped us implement EOS internally. It was one of the, the, the first people that Dan Heiritz had worked with, who was our outside facilitator. Matt fell in love with EOS and he loved it so much that he decided to leave the company to go start his own practice. And us staying true to our purpose and our core values, we want people to truly follow their passion. 
We want it, of course, to be internal if we can. But in this case, we couldn't do anything. This is an external passion. <laughs> so um, while it really hurt us to do it, you know, we wished Matt all the best and did our very level best to throw him business and make introductions and referrals to him so that he could go build his EOS business. And the last time I talked to him, he's doing phenomenal. And I believe he's also got you know a full plate of EOS customers. So we're extremely happy. Because he tr- he was able to do what all of us want to do, which is pursue your passion. And that's what we're doing internally is creating an environment where people can pursue their passion of doing what, whatever it is they love to do. And sometimes it has to go outside. But yeah, Matt's, Matt's been phenomenal. And he's just a uh, uh, so happy for the success that he's had and is going to continue to have in the future. I love that story. Also goes back to karma a little bit because, you know, the... Our, 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 we're in the people business. No one ever said it has to be internal, right? So there's there's good things that are always going to come for everyone that's doing good things for other people. That just makes me think of, uh, maybe hear your thoughts on this. So success is, is, is measured in lots of different ways. People have different metrics for success. Uh, dollars obviously come to terms, but like other than dollars, what like how do you measure success for you and then also your people? Sounds a little bit corny, but... True success is when you're really happy doing what you're doing and you get to get paid for it. And so if there, you know, there's, there's certain jobs that you'd be like, look, there's, you couldn't pay me enough money to go do that job, right? That's the exact opposite of what I would call success. And uh, the flip side where true success is like, God, I love doing this so much. I'd pay money to go do this. Well, you know what, if that can be your career where you're actually paying money to go to work, that is the ultimate career because you're going to do really well at it. And the more we can focus on that, the more people are passionate about their day-to-day stuff, the not only happier they are, but the better job everybody does. And the better job everybody does, the happier they are, the more successful the company. And it's a wonderful flywheel that we able, we're able to build and then keep feeding that flywheel so it spins in perpetual motion. I would say that that for me is true success being able to see people's careers develop and then being really happy and excited about where it's going and then the financial success always follows success when you're passionate about what you're doing so like i said it sounds a little bit hokey but you only live once and you got to be really happy while you're doing it the happier you are and if you happen to be successful at your career while you get to be so happy like matt had to do it outside of rtm but he's really happy. So I consider that a huge success. And we got to introduce him to EOS. He would have never had that if he wasn't here. Same thing with a lot of my engineers here. They're getting to experience things that hopefully they couldn't have done outside and they get to be really passionate and pursue those passions internally. That's the quote right there. YOLO, that's it right there. YOLO. It's <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. It's, 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 it's stood the, uh, through the ages that it's it's what everyone wants at some point. It's just you just want to be happy and enjoying yourself. I want to I want to revisit something that you talked about, which is acquisitions. So, you know, you've had fourteen acquisitions or mergers, and you know, you couldn't have possibly done it, you know, amazingly the first time around, right? So, were there any learning lessons that you've had? To, you know, during your process? <laughs> we don't have enough time for all the learning lessons. <laughs> I guarantee that. 
give us the, give us the highlights. Give give us the big ones. So the, the the first deal we did was with Jim Wicker, and Jim's one of our our partners here. And the poor guy had to deal with such a pain in the butt because we had no idea what we were doing. The cultural integration and the process that we followed, and you know, even pricing for projects, just everything was completely different. So what we've learned over the years is that there is, there's a right way for RTM to go out and find those companies like we talked about before. And there's also a right way to integrate. And then there's a right way to be able to go out and um, invest and grow those organizations. Some of that stuff has to happen rather quickly. Some has to go slowly. We're very fortunate to have amazing outside advisors and an outside board of directors that's helped guide us through these processes. But over time, I can tell you that when when we do a transaction, it's really key that all of the influencers, obviously the owners of the, the seller's company, the influencers, the, the next generation of management are all looped in. And then before we ever go public, because the most important people in an acquisition are the team members that are coming on board. The second most important people are going to be the clients of all of those team members. And then there's us as the buyer. So we're very low on that totem pole as far as that level of importance. So catering the integration process to all those team members to make sure that their lives, both personally, professionally, and financially, are going to be better off the next day instead of the prior day after a transaction occurs is really the, the key piece to it. And we've screwed it up at times. I mean, it's been, it's been a decade. And we've done, uh, we've made a lot of mistakes. And I didn't actually realize how many mistakes we've made until I was, t- I was talking to a new potential seller about two weeks ago. And I was walking them through the process of what we do post-transaction, pre-transaction and post-transaction, what those playbooks look like. And he was flabbergasted. He's like, wow, you really thought about a lot of things that could go wrong. And that's when it hit me. I'm like, crap, that's because so many things have gone wrong in the past. <laughs> At least we're learning from them. Fabulous. What do smaller companies not know that you have experience with? I think for smaller companies, it's hard for some people to be able to imagine what that transition is going to look like when they go into a bigger company and the real value that can be created. Because a lot of people see the when you're when you're at a larger company, oh, it's easy. You've got all the resources. Oh, you've got a marketing department. You can do this. You can do that, etc. That stuff may be true, but the day to day management and maintenance of culture is really really similar. So it's it's really not a a huge mind shift. It's just a matter of them having to be a, ability to be able to spend the time to work on the business versus in the business. That's one. And then the second, I would say, is a huge difference, actually, is the switch from a lifestyle business to a high growth business. And the biggest difference between lifestyle and high growth businesses, we're not we're taking all the profits of the company after bonuses, all the profits of the company, and we're reinvesting all of that in growth. And on top of that, We can take, if we want, we can take outside investors, we can take senior debt, and we can continue to grow. And there's a level of sophistication after, you know, we broke out of the small business norm. There's a certain level of sophistication that we have at the the corporate level that we would have never had before, which just gives us the ability to be able to make better, more informed decisions, have uh, insight 
into uh, more things that are going to be happening in the economy. Our, our tentacles go much farther and deeper into different parts of the country and the economy so that suddenly we, our knowledge and decision-making that we get to make is at a higher caliber than it was when we were a smaller business. Also, with the resources, we're not constantly firefighting, which was a t- typical thing. And I'd be, I'd be doing payroll on the weekend because, you know, Monday morning, I got to be at a project site and then we're designing something and then you got to deal with the unknowns and so on. Now, suddenly it's like all of the non-value added stuff that we all have to do can get pulled off. So the best example when I talk to sellers is accounting, right? Accounting is extremely important, obviously. And accounting is typically done by some, somebody in the office, but a small business that might be the owner or somebody that's the marketing department, the accounting department, three other departments put together. We pull that out. And then you have somebody focusing on that that loves it. They get to pursue their passion because they love accounting. They're going to do a better job of it. And that just gave that other person more time to do what they're really passionate about instead of having to have to do it because it's a necessary evil in running a business. So that gets to help us pursue our passion again. And it's a pretty big differentiator between the small business and the larger business, being able to carve out the things that we don't like doing and maybe we're not as good at and allowing other people to do that, that have those skills and passions. Very insightful. When you acquire a company, what obviously afterwards there's probably lots of communication. It's very important. People important. What what are the things that they tell you that they they learned or they wish they would have known or after you know after this happens after they 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 come in and they're like you know what 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 pops their eyes open essentially? I'd say the opportunities. So one unique one is uh, one of my partners in California, Rod Fingal. Rod was uh, running MFEC with his partners very successfully, and all of them were seller doers. And most engineers prefer to be the doer and not the seller. They don't like to go knock on new doors, right? They give them a great project, they're going to knock it out of the park. Rod was the exact opposite. And Rod didn't realize that, you know, after a successful transaction, we could put him in a position where he gets to pick what he wants to do. And he picked he wanted to be a full-time seller. So not only did he start doing that for the company, but he's built a successful business development team that's bringing in millions of dollars of new work that we would have never had access to because we'd be too busy doing the work that we got as is typical in the cycle. And suddenly Rod gets to truly do what he's really passionate about. So a lot of times when we're when we're doing a transaction, the what that opportunity is, we don't even know yet. So I spend you know a day or two with most sellers and just talking about what they would do if they had all the time in the world and all the resources at their disposal. What would they do with their time? And of all those different things they do, which ones could add the most value to a combined organization? If those things fit, then suddenly if we do the deal, we can also put the seller in that position where they're going to be so happy doing the work, new components of work that they didn't get to do before because we can take all that other stuff off their plate. So most people don't see that. Actually, a lot of sellers have even questioned whether that's true, but it's really, really going to happen. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes, it takes a while, but it does happen. And I introduce new sellers to my partners that already did a deal with us over the last decade and the proof's in the pudding. And these guys will uh, attest to it. Okay. That's 
opportunities is it is an interesting uh, interesting answer right because I, I feel like lots of there's lots of things that people get scared of when they're going to be acquired or, or merged right like it's like my world is going to get tossed upside down and you're saying no no i mean things will change but the opportunities are going to be so outweighing any fear that you should have yeah that's interesting correct and we try to we try to always make it hard we try to always make it so that the the changes that are happening are changes that the merged company wants right oh we need a stronger marketing effort we need stronger brand we need uh more electrical engineers or we need more structural engineers we need we need this we need that so the first thing we do is we're actually doing a a two day offsite traction style to figure out what are the needs of that office as a standalone, right? And then what are the RTM resources we can bring in to go help develop that office? So every office is its own unique boutique office that's part of the overall RTM network. So, you know, tra traditional academic M&A strategy is going to be the parent company drops in and this is the RTM playbook and you're going to do exactly as we say and we've designated it and we're the buyer, so we decide. That's not us. What we do is we come in with traction and we come in with our team asking, hey, you got all the resources at your disposal. What, what do we want to do? Where do we want to be in three years? What are the resources we need to do? What should we you know, take out of the office? What should we add? All these different things like a great management consultant would do. And then we go implement it. So the change is there. Absolutely. But it's almost always for a positive change because we're just trying to fix things with the resources that we have and put them on a higher growth path by leveraging the resources that we can bring to the table. And that's that works for everybody that. But we don't know what they're going to be until we get in there. So it's interesting that you talk about it in this way, because I think it directly relates to something else. And I'm going to ask you the question because we talked about uh, this at, at length, which is what is a platform? What does that mean to you? I think it directly relates to everything that you've just talked about. Yep. So platform is truly what it sounds like. It's a platform organization in which we're able to go out and bring in through M&A efforts, bring in other organizations and very easily build off of them. So we've got the infrastructure in place. We've got the back office. We've got the outside consultants. We've got the independent board of directors. We've got subject matter experts all over the country within the organization that if we brought on another 50 or 100 team members through mergers and acquisition, it, I think it's rudimentary to say it's plug and play because we're in the people business and that's never that easy. But the platform is there. So it's much easier to scale than if we um, if we were a 300 person organic business and we said, hey, we want to bring in this this other company and just merge it in. We don't have the expertise to do that if we'd grown organically. Since we've built a platform through mergers and acquisitions, we've got those playbooks and we can very easily and smoothly bring in one or five new organizations in the next 12 months. And plug and play. You know, but uh, so why build why build a platform, right? For you specifically, why are you? So it sounds like you're building a platform, or you have a platform. Uh, why why the platform? Yeah. So as I said, everyone, it's a pursue their passion. My passion is growth, 
And if RTM stops growing and we decide to for some whatever reason it is, great. But we'll find a new CEO to run the company because it won't be me. So in order for me able to pursue the growth that I'm so passionate about, it was either organic or acquisitive growth. And we chose to, uh, it's really a hybrid. So 50% of our growth is organic, 50% is acquisitive. One isn't necessarily better than the other. One's not cheaper, one's not more expensive, one's not harder or easier. We just did this because I think there's a great strategic advantage to the M&A side because we're going out and bringing in partners through a merger that have been there, done that. They've made all the mistakes that normal entrepreneurs make in the first 10, 20 years of their entrepreneurial journey. So we're able to have them join after all of that and then learn from all of those mistakes and share all the mistakes that we've made. And again, that goes back to that. That makes us so much stronger. That's one piece. The second piece of why I personally am very passionate about the M&A side is very rarely do engineers go into our industry as consulting engineers and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to start a new business so I can stop being an engineer. We're just going to sell engineering services, but I'm not going to be an engineer anymore. They go into business because they want to have a boutique firm and it grows so large that suddenly they can't go out and do any kind of engineering. They've lost their sight of what their passion is we're able to bring in our infrastructure and give that back to them. And I would say this applies to most of the companies out there in our space that engineers have to run the business as a necessary evil so they can go out and be the engineers they love being and mentoring that next generation that they love doing. We get to help uh, get them back into those positions if that's what they want. So that's, that's why I find so much passion in uh, the mergers and acquisition space because I can pursue my passion of growth and empowering team members. And a lot of that is empowering the owner of a company to get back to what they really love doing and take all the other stuff off of their plate. And it helps it helps the whole growth cycle while we're doing it. That is a way of talking about it. So obviously, the goal is to grow RTM. That is the goal. Full focus on that. But what you're saying is a different strategically different than a PE firm looks at things, right? Like they, they look at how can I buy this, mm-hmm. maximize it next, you know, bang, 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 you know, more uh, conveyor belt style, right? You're essentially saying, I want to yeah. take the people and the people will maximize each other. Like the people part is the thing that explodes everything else. So is there, uh, and maybe maybe you don't want to <laughs> wink at this or not, but is, is there a possible path that maybe you decide to run a PE firm in the future? Because again, like if this is a, a high passion of yours and you're doing it in a way that isn't necessarily what's happening in the market, um, that probably means that there's a blue ocean for you. Yeah, there's. Um, I would never say it's a PE component because typically PE firms have a entrance and an exit time frame, sure. right? And that might not be good for the team members. Mm-hmm. But- the model that we built through this uh, acquisitive and organic growth, there's no reason we have to stop anytime in the future, especially since we're building small boutique offices that are run by engineers for engineers, but they're all integrated with each other. So this platform, you know, back to your question, Will, on why, why a platform? Because if it's a well-designed platform, we can take capital in from the outside, from investors, and be able to invest it just like a public company would take in capital and provide a high rate of return. So my, I envision in the future, we'll be able to take down 25, 50, $100 million investments and be able to go distribute that capital through 
grow through M&A and organic and provide those investors a high rate of return, which is different than a private equity model, but it's still utilizing the the whole M&A component of it. We just don't have to go out and flip it. Makes sense. As most most PE firms do. And the, the bad thing is, or I guess the good thing for us is we can maintain our culture while we're doing it. The bad thing on the, the PE side is there's, you know, there's there's a risk of what's going to happen to the company's culture if uh, if it goes through a private equity transaction. No, it's about people. <laughs> it always comes back to people. So that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's all about the people. Exactly. Exactly. But you know, don't get me wrong, private equity, we've studied them. They've got great models. And I personally think the private equity model over the last, you know, the first 10, 20 years when they were doing it is what most people have seen. The current private equity models are very unique and they're longer term thinking. They're in professional services and there's more private equity buyers in our space right now than we've ever seen in history. Wow. We we compete with them on deals now. Not very, not very often, but it does it, it, it happens. Typically, if it's a deal that's truly of interest to them, it probably isn't of interest to us. Because we won't go into an auction, and you know what? What I talked about before, we're we're looking for the right people fit. You've invested a whole bunch in, your, in essentially people and processes. So, what about technology? How do you leverage technology in your business? You know, to help you with being successful or to build to build your scale. The most leverage really is coming from the design side and the communication side. You know, we're all, we're all pre-COVID. We moved to everything onto the cloud and, uh, you know, Microsoft Teams and full collaboration and all that. And uh, with the COVID shutdowns, it really helped us, forced us to learn how to utilize all that technology properly. In the technology realm, I see our industry just starting to truly leverage what technology can do for us. For instance, out on site surveys, something that used to take three days, now with technology, we can get done in a day. And on the civil side, certain you know surveys that would take weeks can get done in days. And the accuracy of those surveys is X10 compared to what it used to be. That's all through uh, enablement through technology. But I think this is the tip of the iceberg. We're just getting started on the technology journey as an industry. So what do you feel you need to improve upon in order to leverage technology at a better scale. Oh gosh, that's going to be a long list of things. Give us the give us the highlights. The most important one is what what we don't know, right? What what are the technologies out there that would enable our team to be more effective that we're just unaware of? So that's that's the biggest piece of it. So you know, we're we're doing the basics. We're changing our ERP and we're always out searching for new technology packages out there that would help improve our team's efficiency or communication. Those are the two biggest pieces of it right now. But I do see stuff that, you know, in the 3 to 5 year window that could be highly disruptive in our industry. And we want to be early adopters of that highly disruptive technology differentiating what that's going to be in the building world is uh, is one of the challenging pieces. It's interesting that you say that, you know, looking forward three to five years, uh, because I think it goes right into this question around what learning lessons do you have with technology? You didn't always think this way, right? Yeah. So how did you used to think and why did it change? I always saw 
know, technology is just a, a tool that helped us enable get our chops done. And when I started probably way back like in high school is when we were switching over from paper to AutoCAD when it first was starting to come out. And for many years, it's really been a tool to go replicate exactly what we've done historically. When I say historically, I mean, a hundred years ago, we would draw up something. Now we use technology to create that same drawing. It's not changed much. How we do it, really cool technology, but still spits out the drawings. What we're seeing in the future is where you're truly going to be able to change it and have these smart cities. You're going to have fully everything fully modeled and be able to solve challenges in minutes instead of weeks in the analysis because everything is going to be properly modeled and saved and shared across different platforms. But there's no front leader in doing that. And there's no specific methodology to be able to do that. So it's going to be it's going to be one of those game changers that we're not sure where it's going to come in from just yet. But when it does, it's going to make a very fast, quick impact. I've also learned that we don't want to be on the bleeding edge of technology. We want to be on the leading edge because that gives us an advantage versus the bleeding edge could, unfortunately, slow down our um, design cycles and even create liabilities within the design that we don't want to have. That's interesting. So uh, leading edge, not bleeding edge. And in our pre-interview, you had talked about, uh, you used to think about, uh, the way you used to think about technology was what we can solve for here today versus longer term thinking, right? The three to five year thinking around technology. Why did you make that shift and when did you do it? Mainly made the shift because we started to think like a long-term company. Back to that whole EOS thing. You know, back in the day, we would be thinking about what are we going to do this year, next year, and maybe two years from now. And it was constantly blocking and tackling, working in the business. And you think about technology the same way. What do I need today? Oh, maybe, I, maybe I'll need this in six months. We should look at evaluating that. We never thought about what are we going to need in three, five, or seven years? And who are the people building it? Or should we go out and start building it ourselves? And when we started to think longer term, it naturally shifted shifted over to technology also. So we want to be a thousand person firm. In a thousand person firm, 30, 40 offices around the country. What are the technologies we're going to need to run so that we don't lose our culture? We don't lose our key communication pieces. We can still leverage all the mistakes that have been made in different parts of the country with the rest of the team? What are the learning and development type of software packages that we could use with a thousand person firm, not 300 or 5,000 person firm? So starting to think like that, suddenly we're like, okay, this could be game changing. And adopting the right technology that we can identify as being highly impactful and suddenly rolling it out across two, 3,000 team members around the country or nation or uh, uh, planet for that matter that can be game changing in both a positive and negative way. You pick the wrong software or you implement it improperly. Hey, we're dead in the water. We've talked to a lot of, yeah, we've talked to a lot of people that have said, you know, technology enhances your processes, but if you don't have good processes, that's not good. That's not to enhance your company. It just enhances bad process. And the same thing, if you just pick the wrong software, you pick the wrong tool, the wrong technology, it can have the negative impact, just as if you pick the right one, it can have such a positive impact. So that's good insight. Exactly, exactly. You know, one more plug on the technology side, it's since we're, we're all engineers and we're really good problem solvers, we like to create our own stuff. 
So I've seen a lot of firms create their own in-house technology to do ABC. And it might work great for a little while, but they're in the engineering business, not the tech space. So keeping it up to date and modernizing it and with the different packages, they're constantly having to have to tinker with this software package that they built. And then the challenge is suddenly it's not scalable and it's distracting them from what that core business is, which is design engineering and not being in the consulting world. So um, I've even had conversations with other owners that, hey, this is a great software. There should be a separate software company that acts and has a culture of a software company, which is very different than an engineering business because in the software business, you got a bug, you got to go fix it. And it might cost you customers. In the engineering business, we can't have bugs because we're building buildings. There's no space for mistakes when, when you're designing a building that people are going to live in. So the mentality is different. Yeah. Uh, one of your core values, uh, core values, excellent engineering, right? If you're distracted by a, a piece of software, that's, you know, how can you get to that core value? Which is something we see engineering firms are a little notorious in this. It's like, why, why do you have this custom in-house software? I'm glad that you could build it. It's amazing. But it also causes for an infrastructure and IT side, it causes lots of problems. Like it's always just like, oh man, this is a big headache that would actually, yep. if you just went to market, you would save yourself so much time, effort, energy, frustration, uh, all those things. So, but uh, on to our last question, Tony. So um, we asked this everybody and we're really excited to hear your answer because we didn't even get a preview of it. So we're super, this is first time us hearing it as well. So if you could go back 20 years, what would you tell yourself? I don't have the right answers and other people do. This has all been done before. None of this stuff's rocket science. So the best thing I could have done is found great advisors and mentors that are really passionate about my company, my career, my passions, and are willing to help advise me in getting there. Because what we're doing, it's, it's been done. It's been done over and over and over. But that, that knowledge of how to do it and that blocking and tackling through that journey, that's not something you learn in school. And that's not something that you normally will get from your peers. That's something that you're going to get from somebody that's got 20 to 40 years more experience than me 20 years ago. And a lot of times they're willing to give back. But being young and naive, didn't realize how valuable the lifelong business lessons can be. I always thought, oh, I know a little better. I could figure this out myself or I'll go build a software package myself. I can go do this. I can go do that, et cetera. And I would, have, I I would go back and I'd tell myself to get as many mentors and advisors as I possibly could and spend the first decade just being a sponge, learn from everything out there. Then you can go out and leapfrog because there's no reason for me to go out and make all these same mistakes that, 10,000 other entrepreneurs have already made, and we could just learn from them instead. That's great advice. So find as many Tonys uh, of your day as possible. That's what I'm hearing. That's a, maybe, maybe, that's a, <laughs> maybe that's a little hokey on my behalf, but I, I truly, you, you've got it together. You figured a lot of yeah. stuff out. Like there's no question about that. So yeah. um, obviously you're looking for more, more companies uh, to acquire. So if you uh, are listening and you are an engineering firm or, uh, you know, uh, have a great culture. Uh, how could how could those companies reach out to you to to say, hey, we'd be interested in, in becoming part of RTM? Please reach out to me. You can reach out to me directly via email. It's Tony at RTMEC.com. 
And um, you can always go to our website, rtmec.com. There's a growth page on there. And it actually has stories and interviews with some of the different partners that have joined RTM. And you guys can see for yourself if it's the right fit or not, because uh, that, that goes back to that whole culture piece. And if anyone out there is you know, just interested in mergers and acquisitions in the professional service space, even if it's not something that you know we would be interested in, I'm happy to share my time and be able to give back because I've gained the most knowledge in my career through my mentors and advisors. And anything I can do to give back to anybody that would like the advice, I'm happy to do. So just reach out to me and love to talk to you. That's awesome. I love that. I'm going to throw all the social links and all that kind of stuff in our show notes. I'll throw in Tony's email as well. Is there anything else you'd like to tell the people today, Tony? Yes. Truly be happy. You've got to just pursue your passion. And that if you can do that in the career that you're at, you are a very, very lucky person to be able to do it. I love that. Great words. All right. Well. Great words of wisdom. Thank you for that. Uh, listeners, until next time, adios. Adios. Thank you for joining us today and listening to this episode. If this episode did help you, then be sure to share it with someone else who needs to hear it. If you want to be a guest on the podcast or looking for additional help on your journey to find more wealth, scale, and freedom in your AEC company, visit our AEC resources page at spotmigration.com backslash AEC hyphen resources. resources.